0: Welcome back for another installment of Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and we are discussing Colorado true crime stories. If you're joining me for the first time, welcome! There are two other episodes sitting waiting for you right now when you're done with this one, if you haven't listened to them yet. They are part one and two about the kidnapping and murder of Adolf Coors III, the heir to the Coors Brewing Empire. You know it's still up on your screen, so go ahead and follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Twitter at Altitude Crime. Uh, Hit me up on social media with your thoughts or suggest a crime. And you can always visit the website AltitudeCrime.com for source materials and pretty cool merchandise, if I must say so myself. I have to give a huge thank you to everyone who's already been listening prior to this week. I have been so excited to start Altitude Crime, and you guys have revved me up even more. Altitude Crime has already had a ton of listens and has already spread to three, count them, one, two, three countries. I could not do it without you guys, and I could not be more thankful. So I wanted to mix things up a little bit this week. The last two episodes covered a pretty famous historic Colorado crime. This week, I wanted to cover something totally different. Today, we'll be talking about the murders of Sherry Irene Boyd and Eric Stanley Houston. These cases took place separately, but the victims were actually half-siblings. While Eric's case is solved and has actually gotten a decent amount of publicity, Sherry's murder is still unsolved, and at least to the public eye, it doesn't look like there have really been any leads since the murder. This made me even more committed to telling her story because it is so important to try to keep stories like this out there because you never know who is listening and who might just have the break everyone is looking for. I will warn you, this episode is a little rough. It definitely took a toll on me to research it because in both cases, the victims were super vulnerable, but let's get into it. On October 16, 1987, at 11.40 a.m., the Colorado Springs Police Department got what you would consider a unique call. Someone walking around Prospect Lake at Memorial Park had called to report what looked like a body floating in the lake. The body was located and removed from Prospect Lake and taken to the coroner, Michael Stewart, for an autopsy. There was no identification on the body or on the shore of the lake. Stewart determined that the murder happened around dawn that same day. The exam proved both that the incident was indeed a homicide and that the female victim had died from asphyxiation. Ansel Martinez's reporting for the Gazette newspaper noted that the coroner had determined that the victim had been strangled with some type of material or fabric. The body was eventually identified as Sherry Irene Boyd, who was 44 at the time of her death. Sadly enough, her family heard about the body being found, but they would have never imagined it was Sherry, who was already wheelchair bound from a previous assault. According to her obituary, Sherry was born on October 4, 1943, to Charles Edward and Betty Jane Gorman Houston. She was born in Colorado Springs. Raymond McCaffrey of the Gazette newspaper wrote a wonderful article in 1987, where he interviewed Sherry's cousin Dionne Muse Harris. This piece provided the most information about who Sherry was as a person. Much of the following information is from his article. Sherry attended Palmer High School in Colorado Springs. She was a dancer at heart and had started dancing classes at age four. While Sherry would have preferred to pursue dancing right out of high school, she instead put education as her priority. After all, it was 1960. Large parts of the country, including Colorado, were not yet desegregated, and there were no jobs or demand for black dancers at the time. After graduating high school, she went on to study dance at Colorado College, also located in Colorado Springs. At a young age, Sherry had a short marriage to Wayne Ferris. When the marriage dissolved, she moved to Los Angeles, where some of her family lived. Once there, she remarried and had three children, two sons and a daughter. This marriage also ended in divorce. As most women did in the era, Sherry worked in secretarial positions after her marriage. She even booked some modeling gigs. And I think this is so cool, not only because the industry is really competitive in general, but also because I have to assume that modeling was still a really white-dominated industry at the time. And to be honest, it still is now. So this is really quite an accomplishment. Unfortunately for Sherry, her modeling career would be brief, as an encounter with a stranger would change her life forever. According to McCaffrey's article, Sherry was viciously attacked in Los Angeles in 1977. She was left for dead by her assailant, but survived the ordeal. She had been raped and left in an alley with no clothing. Upon receiving medical treatment at a nearby hospital, it was found that her memory was damaged as well as her speech. Sherry's lack of memory meant she wasn't sure who she was when she arrived at the hospital. It would take three weeks to identify who was laying in that hospital bed. The damage to Sherry's memory left huge holes in her recollection of the attack. This didn't mean she didn't try to reclaim her memory, which may have helped track down her assailant. Sherry even tried hypnosis to regain her memory of that night, but she would never be able to remember what happened or who had done such a terrible thing to her. Her assailant was never identified or apprehended. The attack turned Sherry's life upside down in so many ways. Doctors told Sherry she would be paralyzed from the neck down, And she would be forced to navigate the physical and emotional pain of rehabilitation from her injury all alone. She was divorced and now paralyzed, and her two youngest children were moved into foster care. Amazingly enough, Sherry had a sunny disposition about her situation. She was described as fiercely independent by her family, and that just resonates so much with me. Sherry would have every reason to stop even attempting to get anything out of life. But around a year after her attack, her hard work and positivity would pay off. She began to have the use of her upper body. Sherry moved back to Colorado in 1985. Her half-brothers and half-sister lived in Colorado, so she was taking the chance to reconnect with them. One of her half-brothers, Eric Houston, was killed before they got the chance to see each other. He was murdered on the west side of Colorado Springs in November 1986. We will revisit Eric's story a little later on. At the time that she moved back to Colorado, it had been eight years since the Alley incident. And how incredible is this? By this time, with the help of a cane and leg braces, Sherry was walking again. This woman was unstoppable. Once back in Colorado, Sherry continued rehab for her long-term injuries. And although she was still regaining use of her body, it was clear she kept the same grace she had had when she was a dancer. She often told her cousin Dion to watch out because she knew she would dance again. In January 1986, Sherry was evicted when she couldn't afford her rent. Social services helped make new living arrangements for her and ended up moving her into Penrose Hospital. Penrose was where she'd been doing rehab and she was familiar with the property. This move is where the story takes a sad turn, as if what Sherry has already been through is not horrible and sad enough. Her cousin, Dionne Muse-Harris, tried to get custody of her. This would have granted her access to help make decisions about Sherry's medical and social services care. But Dion wasn't granted custody, and in turn was restricted in what information she could find out about Sherry's care. Sherry's body continued to rebound in rehab. Her cousin Dion recounted in McCaffrey's article that in a rush one day to get out the door together, Sherry even walked on her own with no cane. She was still in the leg braces, and Sherry made that her next goal. She wanted to walk without the assistance of the braces, and after that was dancing. Sherry was confident of that. Although Sherry’s body was progressing, her mind was maybe not. Friends of Sherry soon became concerned. She often seemed confused when she spoke with her friends. People who knew her felt that residing in the hospital was starting to disintegrate her faculties. Dionne, Sherry's cousin, would see her for the last time in August, two months prior to her murder. Since Dion didn't gain custody of Sherry, she wasn't notified when Sherry was moved to an apartment. According to the Colorado Springs Police Department, Sherry moved into an apartment in the 3700 block of East LaSalle Street. Her apartment was about 12 minutes north of Prospect Lake, where her body was found. In McCaffrey's article, police were unclear on the state of the apartment when they went to investigate. They only said that, quote, that something took place, unquote. That would lead you to believe that there was something odd or something disturbed about her home. Natalie Phillips' report for the Gazette said that someone living near Sherry had heard a loud knock and arguing at her apartment prior to her body being found. According to another report for the Gazette, the motive for the killing was completely unclear. It was also unclear where exactly she was murdered prior to being dumped in Prospect Lake. It was clear that the murder was beyond malicious, because not only did someone do this to Sherry, but she was virtually defenseless. Raymond McCaffrey from the Gazette newspaper reported that her wheelchair was still in her apartment. Sherry never had a chance. Sherry's case remains unsolved to this day and is considered an open investigation. No suspects have ever been arrested. Two years ago on October 16th, 2019, 32 years after Sherry's death, the Colorado Springs police department posted a snapshot of her case on their Facebook page in an effort to get any more new leads. But at least to the public, it doesn't look like any new information has become available yet. If you have any information regarding Sherry, her attacker or attackers, or anything that could be of the least bit of significance, please contact the Colorado Springs Police Department Cold Case Unit at 719-444-7000. If you would like to remain anonymous and be considered for a cash reward, please call Crime Stoppers at 719-634-STOP, which is 719-634-7867. While Sherry's murder remains unsolved, the case of her half-brother's murder, Eric Stanley Houston, was solved. His case was actually even featured on Lieutenant Joe Kenda's show, Homicide Hunter, for those of you that are avid investigation discovery watchers. On November 10, 1986, a housekeeper delivering towels to room 125 in the Amarillo Motel in Westside, Colorado Springs would make a horrendous discovery. There, in his room, propped against the couch, was 32-year-old Eric Stanley Houston, dead from multiple stab wounds. Eric, whose nickname was Big Time, had recently moved into the motel. I want to give a little bit of background about the area that Eric lived in. In Homicide Hunter, Lieutenant Joe Kinda gives a really great description of the area. The Amarillo Motel, which is still there today, is located in the west side of Colorado Springs. The west side of town was really the first area of Colorado Springs to become populated, so it's a much older part of town. As Kenda explained, because of this age in the area, there's a continuous amount of crime, but not really any serious offenses. This case also has the element of motel life layered in. There are a lot of similar motels in town, and they garner an interesting crowd of tenants. Some people are just down on their luck or getting back on their feet, and the weekly and monthly rates work for them. For others, it's a way to be pretty anonymous and pay cash and not have a lot of questions asked. So these motels end up with a pretty interesting atmosphere. The Amarillo itself was definitely not in a particularly bad part of town. It's actually located in an area that is kind of the lead into a pretty touristy part of town, and it's relatively well kept. At the time, the Amarillo hosted rooms for people with limited income. Upon investigation, the attack was thought to be a robbery. There were signs of an immense struggle and what looked like a pretty frenzied attack. Eric's killer had taken everything out of his pockets, and there were broken wires like something electrical had been stolen from the room. It would later be discovered that item was Eric's brand new cassette tape player stereo system. And this makes me feel so much... Like you have this sheer excitement of saving up and you're buying the stereo system for yourself and you're really looking forward to enjoying it. And then the rug is just snatched out from underneath you in the absolute worst kind of way. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. Eric's boss had told the Gazette newspaper that Eric had purchased some stereo equipment and she was concerned that that could have been a motive for his crime. There was also an open bottle of vodka at the scene, which police quickly removed fingerprints from. They were able to identify that the fingerprints from the vodka bottle were not Eric's and most likely belonged to his killer. But this was the 80s, and there wasn't a computerized database for fingerprints. And not only did the prints have to be matched manually, but as is the case today, not everyone has been fingerprinted. The Colorado Springs Police Department would have to wait to try to match fingerprints against any suspects they got into custody. The coroner would reveal that Eric had been stabbed 27 times. You can see why police started the investigation with those close to Eric, because this certainly seemed really personal. The wounds punctured his heart, lungs, liver, and spleen. The timing of his death was placed as November 9th, 1986, between 10 p.m. and 12 a.m. A toxicology report showed that Eric's blood alcohol content was a 0.2. As a reference, Colorado state law for drunk driving is a 0.08. So not only did the stab wounds pierce his major organs really quickly and make him immediately defenseless, but he was really intoxicated as well. Eric never had a chance at fighting back. As police investigated the scene, the supposed murder weapon was found in the motel's parking lot. It was bloodied and was a rather large kitchen knife. The coroner was able to confirm that the size of the knife matched those of Eric's wounds. The apartment was a grisly scene. The large number of stab wounds inflicted on Eric had left huge amounts of blood splatter and blood evidence all over his room. Some of the blood evidence would tell a lot about Eric's killer. As is really common in stabbing deaths, especially ones with this many strikes, is that the knife can essentially become slippery from all the blood coming from the victim. And this can cause the assailant's hand to slip from the grip of the knife and down onto the blade and causes what is usually a really serious cut. Found at the scene were blood droplets called gravity blood evidence. So imagine this, you cut yourself chopping up vegetables and stand back from the counter Blood from your wound would pool on your skin and drop to the kitchen floor if you did nothing to stop it. This is a gravity blood pattern. There is nothing interfering with it except for the pull of gravity taking that blood in a straight down motion to the ground. This type of blood evidence was found in Eric's apartment, so it was indicative of the killer cutting himself on the knife, then the blood falling from their hand. Blood found at the scene was shown to be from two different people, which solidified this evidence with the blood pattern. They could then assume that one type of blood was Eric's and the other was his killer's. When the police found this, they alerted all the hospitals in the area immediately, should the suspect turn up with a hand wound. But they did not have any patients matching this and it didn't create any leads. So now a little bit about Eric. Eric came from a loving family, but tragedy struck really early on in Eric's life. One day as a child, while walking to the grocery store with his brother, Eric was hit by a car. He was in the hospital for quite some time. He sustained long-term head injuries that left him with a diminished mental capacity. This led Eric to have a hard time focusing in school or holding down a steady job. He bounced around for a little while before becoming employed at Goodwill Industries, where he polished floors. People who worked with Eric said he was pleasant and reliable. Overall, Eric was a really likable and kind guy. Eric's mental capacity and the motel atmosphere would be the perfect storm in regards to who Eric surrounded himself with. Eric saw the good in everyone and saw everyone as his friends. He didn't evaluate people as much as some of us might, and this led him to be taken advantage of. Eric was known for going to the liquor store on payday and inviting everyone in the motel to drink. It didn't matter who they were or if they gave him money. Many of the people Eric associated with had a pretty long criminal backgrounds, including violent crimes. Now, deep down, I wish we all were a little bit more Eric. But unfortunately, we don't live in that perfect world where good things always happen to good people. And instead, a lot of times, good people become targets. In Teresa Owen Cooper's reporting for the Gazette, Eric's father, George Houston, was quoted as saying, quote, from the beginning, we thought it was someone he knew, unquote. The police's investigation led them in a lot of directions. The motel manager directed police to another tenant who was friends with Eric. Eric and this tenant worked at Goodwill together and had formed a really close relationship. This friend was immediately ruled out and it was clear that he was truly upset about Eric's passing and was no way involved. The police would come to revisit him again, however, as he was the most genuine link to Eric they had. Police had found a receipt in Eric's pocket for the bottle of vodka found in the room. He had purchased it the night before, so that was another good place to start. They interviewed the clerk at the liquor store who knew who Eric was right away. He told police that Eric came in often. That particular night, the clerk remembered Eric came in alone, but he said he was going to go drink with some friends. When he left the store, he left in a car that someone else was driving. But the clerk wasn't sure who that person was, and the police had a really tough time trying to track this down. Searching for answers in this case turned into kind of a dog and pony show. When CSPD asked around, they got pointed in a lot of different directions, mainly due to the collection of people that Eric hung around with. There were a ton of stories for why he was killed, from his music being too loud to it being retaliation for him being involved in other crimes and all kinds of crazy stories. This led to a ton of potential motives and even more suspects. In their frustration, the police returned to Eric's friend that was a tenant at the motel with him, just to see if anything had come to mind. And something had. He remembered a guy that often got upset with Eric named Stanley Johnson. Eric had recently told him that Stanley had threatened to stab him. Police got really zoned in on Stanley when they found this out because he's a pretty good suspect. Not only did he threaten to stab Eric, but he had the same car seen at the liquor store and admitted he was the one driving Eric around that night. The timestamp at the liquor store seat put him with Eric just one hour prior to the time of death window that the coroner gave. So it had to be this guy, right? Case closed. We're done. Nope. Stanley admitted that he and Eric had kind of a frenemy relationship, but any threats were just talk. Stanley said that he only dropped Eric off at his apartment and never went inside, He instead went to a party somewhere else. Police were able to verify his alibi and with multiple people and neither his DNA or his fingerprints were a match. So it seemed like a really, really solid lead was gone and police were back at square one all over again. You can't say that police weren't doing their job. Hundreds of man hours were spent on the investigation, but turned up nothing over the course of the investigation, police identified and ruled out fifty-two suspects. Fifty-two, five-two, over fifty. This case blows my mind because how often is it that there's no suspect or there's like one to three-ish. 52 is astronomical, and I can only imagine the amount of time it took to find those people and rule them out. As police continued to interview people, they were given the name Arthur Anaya. Anaya's name came up pretty early in the investigation, sometime around 1987, which was a year after the murder. Rumor had it he had told people, On the street, that he had killed Eric. He was also known to be one of the people that would go and drink in Eric's apartment. And Anaya had a long criminal history. Lieutenant Jokinda described his record as, quote, measured in pounds rather than pages, unquote. And his offenses included violent crimes. Anaya was brought in for questioning and was accompanied by his parole officer. He initially tried to play really coy about the crime, and his parole officer stepped in and basically told him, like, buddy, you better cooperate with this questioning or I'm taking your butt to jail. Even without Anaya owning up to anything about the crime, his extensive criminal background gave police the right to take his DNA and fingerprints to test against what they had found at the scene. At this point, Anaya became only about half of a lead. His fingerprints definitely did not match those found at the scene on the vodka bottle. And his DNA matched, but DNA science at the time didn't eliminate as many people as it does now. In the 1980s, DNA could be narrowed down to two things. One was blood type, which could rule suspects in or out at a very basic level. And the other was antigen testing. Antigens are protein markers found on red blood cells. Antigens attach to antibodies in your system to build your immune system up. So while a lot of people's antigen markers can be different, it doesn't rule out someone as the only person that could commit a crime, like some DNA analysis does now. Without a fingerprint match and solid DNA evidence to link Anaya to Eric's murder, he was let back out on the streets. After Anaya's questioning, the case started to go cold. It got a little revitalization on September 27th, 1990. State troopers picked up a hitchhiker who right off the bat said he needed to get out of town because he killed Eric Houston. And that's usually not the way police get a confession. So this made them kind of suspicious of his story to begin with. As police questioned him, they find that all the information he knows was published in the newspapers. His fingerprints and DNA aren't a match either. Upon looking at his past, the police find that he had a pretty extensive history of mental illness, and knowing that he isn't their man, they instead took him to Penrose Hospital for psychiatric evaluation and treatment. And then, the years go by. Eric's murder was not forgotten, but no valid information was found to point police to his killer. Many in the community just assumed that this was a case that wouldn't ever be solved. Then, in 1995, an informant came forward. They knew a lot of the people that lived in and hung around the Amarillo Motel. The informant lived on the streets at the time and had a criminal history. The story from the informant was they were having a conversation with a good friend about their past crimes. A third guy who was with them chimed in and boasted that he was Eric Houston's killer. This third person in the conversation Was Arthur Anaya, who police had already tried to connect to the crime. The informant said they took a long time to go to police because they feared what may happen to them if Anaya found out that they had snitched. Anaya had threatened to kill them and their family if they told anyone. As an agreement to get information, the informant's identity has been kept confidential to this day. The informant claimed that Anaya and an accomplice, Bobby Chavez, decided to rob Eric. They demanded money from him, but when Eric had nothing to give, Anaya stabbed him to death, and then they stole Eric's stereo and left. Police knew the informant story was legit. They had never released to the press that property was stolen from Eric's apartment, so they knew this story was real. Police had always thought that there was only one assailant, So this now explained why Anaya's fingerprints did not match the ones they found at the scene on the vodka bottle. Police would eventually find out that during the stabbing, Anaya cut his hand on the knife blade and went to the sink to stop the bleeding. This left the gravity blood pattern in the apartment. Chavez then drank some of the vodka, which left his fingerprints on the bottle. Police could now pin the crime on Anaya and Chavez and wasted no time. Anaya, who was 45 at the time, was easy to find. He was in prison. He had been arrested and had pled guilty to second-degree murder earlier that month. The second-degree murder charge took place in 1994, in which he shot his 22-year-old niece, Anna Anaya. Chavez, who was 37, had known Eric since they were kids. He lived down the street from Eric's family when they were children, and they continued to be friends as adults. Chavez had a long rap sheet that included multiple shootings, deadly weapon charges, and attempted stabbings. His prints were on file and they were quickly matched to the ones from the vodka bottle at Eric's apartment. The prints were from his left index finger and left thumb. He was tracked down in Trinidad, Colorado, where he then resided about two hours away from Colorado Springs. Both men received charges for first-degree murder, as well as aggravated robbery and conspiracy. Between his sentence for the murder of his niece and Eric's murder, Anaya is serving life with the possibility of parole. His next parole eligibility date is not until 2036. Chavez was given a life sentence, also with the possibility of parole, and from what I can find, is still incarcerated. Eric Houston's crime was the longest in Lieutenant Joe Kenda's career, spanning over nine years. If you're interested in watching the Homicide Hunter episode about Eric's case, the name of the episode is Murder in a Bottle. A link to the Amazon posting of the episode will be on AltitudeCrime.com with the other source materials for this episode. Most importantly, Eric's case was the first time DNA evidence was used to solve a crime in Colorado. So let's get into my musings. Musing number one. Like I said, these cases were rough to write about. I honestly didn't know exactly what I was getting into when I started writing this episode. I started with Sherry's case first. I knew that her story being unsolved and with little information would not be enough content to make a 40 minute long episode for you guys. So I had planned all along to pair Sherry's story with a second story. When I read about Eric's case in one of the newspaper articles about Sherry, that seemed like a natural fit. And I guess I thought Eric's case would be some kind of normal murder, whatever that means. I had no idea when I started researching that Eric had a diminished mental capacity when I started writing his story. I was emotionally worn out by the time I finished this script, mainly because you had two people through incidents with total strangers that were inflicted with handicaps for the rest of their lives. And that would be monumental for someone to overcome on its own. Both of them were so positive and people described what good hearts they had. Both Sherry and Eric went through things in life that most people will never come up against, and they were coming out on the other side. So the fact that someone can work so hard to overcome what life has thrown at them and then be literally snuffed out by some piece of trash just absolutely enrages me, and it hurts my heart. It's just unreal that humans can be this way, and on top of it, to think of a family that has to endure both of those losses. And at least in Eric's case, the men were caught and put away so they can't do this to someone else. But Sherry's case hasn't seen justice. And who knows who else that person or persons who did this have hurt. That's why it is so important to me to cover unsolved crimes. Because that person was important. Sherry was important. Her family is important. And freaking justice is important. And now I need to calm myself down because I'm really worked up. (sighs) Musing number two, Natalie Phillips reporting for the Gazette on November 9th, 1987, had what is now a really ironic quote in it. This was just one month after Sherry's murder and one year after Eric's. The quote was from Lieutenant Kenneth Bans, investigator with the Colorado Springs Police Department. He said of the cases, quote, I think both will be solved eventually. We'll probably solve the Boyd one first. She had a limited number of friends, and it's not as old as the Houston case. In both cases, I lean towards thinking it was either a friend or an acquaintance, unquote. This just proves that at the end of the day, investigations are never linear. You would think that Sherry's case would have been solved by now. If the knock on her door the the neighborhood was her killer, then you would assume it was someone who she would open a door to. But here we are approaching the 34-year mark since her death, and her case is as cold as ever. Musing number three. So a reporter that was a commentator in the Homicide Hunter episode about Eric's case brought up a really interesting thought. She was talking about how the two men that killed Eric, who had very long rap sheets, needed to be in jail for good for the safety of the community. She said that basically Eric was the conduit for that to happen. And it was just such a removed way to think of how we get killers and violent people like this behind bars. It doesn't come by happenstance. It comes at the misfortune of someone else. And it was just a way that I hadn't thought of true crime, and I found it really interesting. Musing number four. I want to repeat... Eric's case was the first time DNA evidence was used to solve a crime in Colorado. With that said, outside of the Homicide Hunter episode and a couple of news articles, I couldn't find a lot about Eric's case, and that seems insane to me. You would think that that would have been splashed all over the papers. But this is why I look into true crime, because what is covered in the media is so at the mercy of the news cycle. I have to ask why the solving of Eric's case with DNA is not something I can Google and get an immediate answer on. Is it because he's part of this kind of disenfranchised part of society? Was the story not exciting enough during that time in the news cycle? Who knows? But it blew my mind that there didn't seem to be huge headlines about this. Musing number five. So I know all your true crime brains are pumping about Anaya already being in prison for his niece, Anna's murder. And I intended to use this final musing to tell you about what happened, but I cannot find any information on this crime, which makes it even sadder. I understand if a family didn't have the money to place an obituary, but that means that she passed without so much as a sentence in an article in the paper. And that is the final tragedy of this episode. And that brings us to the end of the episode. I know this one was a little rough, but thanks for hanging in there with me. I am a big believer in that the stories that are the hardest to tell are the ones we need to tell the most. Again, if you didn't hear the first two episodes about the kidnapping and murder of Adolf Coors III, listen to it now. Make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts and connect with me on Facebook at Altitude Crime, Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, or Twitter at Altitude Crime. I'd love to hear what you guys think about the case, and please, please feel free to suggest new ones. Also visit the website, altitudecrime.com, for source materials and super cool merchandise. And now that we are such good friends, why don't you leave a review and recommend the podcast to all your true crime-loving friends. Also, if you're needing something a little bit lighter after that story, go on over to Amazon where you can purchase my collection of adolescent poetry. Just search the title A Teenager's Diary by Amelia Allen, and it's actually free to read if you have a Kindle Unlimited account, so have at it. And thank you so, so, so much for spending this time of your day with me. I am so thankful for you listening. I can't wait to tell you another story next week. That's it for today, but join me next Sunday for another episode of Altitude Crime. Episode 3, The Murders of Sherry Irene Boyd and Eric Stanley Houston, was written, edited, and produced by Amelia Allen and music by Podbean.com.